You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Watch over those in harm's way um, on the coast. uh, those are recovering from Nate uh, from a couple of days ago in, in, in Mexico and in Louisiana and from just storms and strife and all manner of, of ill, Lord. Um, watch over us, bless us, and keep us. Uh, be with us now as we open your word. Um, come to us in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> um, as Andrew mentioned, I want to just highlight this because we haven't really. Um, uh, we are, the Advent's taken another little trip. Um, little big trip to um, hey, to uh, to England and Scotland this year um, this summer. Uh, kind of trying to get a gauge on on interest for um, these sorts of things. We have this in mind this summer. Uh, we have several friends of the Advent who, of course, are at Oxford or in Edinburgh or St Andrews or at Cambridge or in London. Um, we'll hope to pull several of them around. Uh, at least one of them, John O'Lineball, who some know is going to be with us the whole time. I'm particularly um, uh, looking forward to that. Um, if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you about that. And then we're looking towards 2020, even letting some people know so they can save their pennies or look ahead if they want to. We're, we're hoping to take a trip to Israel, to the Holy Land, which um, I'm not sure the Advent's ever done. Um, so hey. Uh, so that's kind of how we're looking to space things and these things out. Um, we're back into Mark. We'll be in Mark 11 this week. Um, I'd like to just reset the class a little bit each each week. Next week will be the last one. Um, this week, looking at um, uh, a very interesting uh, section of Mark where he curses a fig tree um, and, and then he cleanses the temple and then he comes back to the fig tree. And Peter looks up and says, "Hey, it's withered. Um, look what you did." And then he, uh, and then Jesus sort of backs off a little bit of what almost seems like peevish behavior, and he he says, uh, "Faith that moves mountains." Um, so that whole interesting spot there. But to get there, thinking about what we're doing every week, what I'm hoping to do is, is resetting it. Um, this whole place and it's interesting. Well, this this whole Series called Christ Coming to You, where it's having a little bit of a different flavor with a heavy emphasis on the passive tense, Christ coming to us rather than us going to Christ. Uh, people that know me would know that that's my preferred position is the passive position. I think that's the scriptural position. Um, it lines up all along with the, the five solas, for instance, that we're looking at for the, for the for the five Sundays of October leading up to the Reformation uh, Christ coming to us with the emphasis on his work being done in his way, um, not lacking for any needed thing. The thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about this class last Monday uh, was the obvious, what that means, Christ coming to us. I want to highlight this. It's about a relationship. Implicit in any idea of even us going to Christ, but certainly Christ coming to us, you have to pull in the relational language because it's a relationship. There are at least two parties. Um, there's a dyad, you could call that in sort of psychology or in marriage counseling or whatever else. Um, 
Christ coming to you. Not y'all, not us, but Christ coming to you. It's a dyad where it's a relationship that's established, that's initiated, consummated, uh, continued, and fulfilled by Christ. Christ alone. I think it's probably going to be next week's sermon, in fact, is Solo Cristo. Christ alone, him coming. And so why then uh, have we looked at all these different um, illustrations? I've been illustration heavy on purpose this series, more so than I'm than I typically am. The first week, looking at that young couple, um, a relationship, they were about to get married, a premarital couple, and they were made up to see what they would look like. They were probably 28, 29 years old, and they saw what they were going to look like when they were 50, and when they were 70, and when they were 90. And 50 was kind of funny. And they were like, oh, I hope you look this good. And, oh, this is funny. Oh, my mom, I should put that out the sun. She's going to laugh and laugh and laugh. But then 70. He opened her eyes, and she opened, she opened her, her eyes, and he opened his, and they just cried. And then at 90, and they just broke down, where they just had this heaviness and the sense of a realization when I'm doing this, calling that repentance, where you come to your senses, where you see things as they actually are, where, ah, it's what Jay Ezel talked this morning in his stewardship sermon, where in the midst of a relationship, when he saw his wife's eyes, I think he wouldn't mind me saying this, when he said, I've got cancer and I don't know. And it's in a relationship. She was right there. And suddenly things were very clear. What matters? So it was the first week. The second week, Ruby Turpin, one of my favorite characters in Flannery O'Connor's short stories, um, totally consumed with herself and her own self-definition as being good people. Um, where everybody else is trash of one sort or another. And she instantly goes into a room and she always sizes it up and she knows exactly who's like her and who's not. Uh, and then she comes to a revelation, the title of the short story, where, um, where God, in a direct relationship with her, um, thrust her to see um, the prophetic word from this, this uppity Wellesley uh, sophomore girl who hit her between the eyes with a, a psychology textbook in 1962 waiting room to realize that she is a warthog from hell. Uh, and God shows her her own bent inwardness and to see the lunatic fringe laughing and leaping like frogs and they're all the way to heaven. That's the end of her story. Um, or then the third week where we looked at the, I read the story of, of, a, of a woman soon after, again, marriage soon after they got married and she slipped into a suicidal psychosis that was there with depression and he stayed and he hated it but he loved that year in that strange way that he described it I couldn't wait for her to get well and had confidence that she would and yet and yet and yet I miss it I miss her illness because all we talked about was love and life and death the three things and it was always clear where she saw they saw each other and it undid her it undid him that was the big tag he could take it when she would talk about death he could take it when she would talk about you know the small things but when he would she would have a moment of lucidity and she would say I love you he couldn't he couldn't stand that it undid him and he just broke down all those times that was the third week and then the fourth the short film last week um, in French uh, where a man who was so, again, self-consumed, didn't see things the way they actually are, um, and thought as his world, as he would make it, this 
this fling with a with a stewardess was uh, was was good, and his wife was getting boring, etc. and so forth. And he thought he was going to a restaurant to break up with her, but she gave him papers that said, "I'm dying of leukemia." Suddenly, I see I see you, and back to love a relationship, which changes everything. Simple as it sounds, love really does make the world go. It's the catalyst of life. It changes things at a fundamental level. Um, the presence of love, the absence of love, the intrusion of love, the withholding of love, the, uh, the cessation of love, these things mark us all manner of ways. Um, Christ coming to you. Why? Not because he looks down and he says, Gil, he's the right body type. He's got the hair, he's got the eyes, his feet are just pretty. There's nothing about that. While I am yet sinning, his enemy, weak and godless, the four ways he describes it in Romans 5, which has been kind of the subterranean passage for this whole series. Um, he, uh, he loves me. He loves you just because he does, because it's in him, his quality, his very being is love. And that's what he does. God does who he is. God says in his word who he is. Um, this is why, and we're going to set up the create more emotional space this morning as we climb into Mark 11, um, a deathbed scene. Um, so it's another heavy time. Um, uh, and it's, I'm reminded, if you, you hear this from lots of motivational speakers and all, and they're completely right on this. Nobody in the history of mankind, obvious hyperbola, Nobody in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, has ever, when they're dying, looked up and said, I wish I worked more. I wish I spent more time at the office. I wish I finished binge-watching The Walking Dead. I wish I spent more time by myself. I wish I blank. What do you wish for? That, the, the longing for love the longing for a human relationship which creates and defines meaning in this life which carries us into the next one. Uh, that's where people are when they're dying. And so here's this um, story. It's a, I think it was a made-for-TV movie off of a, of, a, of, a, of a play called Wit. I've never seen it. I've just seen this little clip. I don't know who else has. Um, I know it was on Broadway, and, and, uh, and there's this scene. Um, I can't even remember the actress's name. She's well known, but she's got um, uh, she's English. Emma Thompson. It's Emma Thompson. You can hardly recognize her because she shaved her head because she's uh, she's playing a character who has terminal, who's got um, ovarian cancer and she's dying. She was an English professor, I think, of with a specialty in John Donne literature. Just read that on Wikipedia. Um, but that's interesting because. Uh, anyway, because of what he writes about, which is love um, uh, in the early 17th century. Specialist in John Donne, where she relies upon her life being defined by her wit, by her intelligence, her cleverness, her, um, her ability to master her craft, which was all in her head. And then this, this disease comes and displaces all of that ovarian cancer, where now she's dying. And, uh, and her life is whittled down to a very, very, very few people. And I think a lot of the way this movie is often used is, is uh, uh, 
in medical education, in fact, where the patient isn't just a guinea pig for experimental treatments. That's a lot of what the sub subplot is. But for where we are, it's just to watch her um, alone, alone, alone in her bed until one person in her life comes back. It's her mentor. Um, it's going to be a much older woman at this time who just happens to be in New York. Um, and she went by her office, and they said that she's in the hospital. And so she came to see her. And that's the interchange here. And she's going to read The Runaway Bunny. If you remember that story, if you've got grandchildren or children, this is the one um, Margaret Wise Brown, I think, is the author. Um, I'm going to become a fish in a trout stream, and I'm going to swim away from you. Well, if you do that, I'm going to become a fisherman, and I'll fish for you. Well, if you do that, I'm going to become an apple in an apple tree, and I'm going to go far away or something like that. Well, I'll become an apple. I'll tend an apple orchard, and I'll, I'll, I'll pluck you or whatever he says. I'm going to climb a mountain. I'm going to become a mountain climber, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come get you. Just the pursuit of God, and we'll sort of digress that a little bit um, and, uh, and then pick it apart. Relationship is the, uh, the primary thing, trying to have some repentance which isn't an action of sorrow to express how sorry I am. Let me do an act of penance. Let me show you my repentance. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me be sufficiently remorseful for the things that I've done or left undone, said or left unsaid. Um, this is wholly different with Christ coming to us who then shifts the way that we apprehend the world from a heart level first, then up to um, our... Our, our rational sense of our senses, our rational awareness of our senses. Repentance has to do with that heart change that sometimes is thrust upon us, I would say, only three or four times in a life, typically. I mean, it's that seldom. It's that seldom that we actually have the ground shifted so much that for the moment, we see things as they actually are. So this is this scene. So any comments or thoughts on what I've said so far? It's about six minutes, so we can kind of settle in. Let me fix that real fast. And I'll hit the lights.
shucks. I might just as well stay where I am and be a little bunny. And so he did. Have a cat, said the mother bunny. It's a very effective little scene. Um, even noted this time the, the ascending scales, which even sort of directs you upward. You know, time to go, heart at rest. I mean, that's a um, that's a repeated technique. Television or, or Les Mis uses that to great effect. If you remember the scales, da 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 da. That's the coming down. This is going up and that sort of thing. So it's just something to look out for. But a, an effective and affective uh, scene here. Um, shall I recite some done to you? you know, this thing that you've mastered, this craft. No. And she goes down to something as simple as the runaway bunny. Oh, look at that. A little allegory of the soul. Um, uh, wherever it hides, wherever the soul hides, God will find it. Um, and then I think, now I'm obviously forcing this in, I wouldn't say that necessarily this is what they intended, but from where I've been the last five weeks, some of y'all have been with me in this class the whole time, that word, see Vivian, see Vivian, and now sight, there's sight, see Vivian, it's an invitation to repentance, to clarity, to where we were at the beginning in Mark 1, um, repent, and believe, which you can also say repent and be faithed. But that word believe is actually the word faith. It's just the verb form in the passive tense where it's repent, see Vivian, and be faithed. Receive this gift of faith that is not your doing so that no one may boast. Um, uh, apprehend Christ coming to you. 
and be faith, believe, um, be entrusted to the never-breaking, unending love of God, um, to see things as they actually are. And then, what does she do? You don't even notice it, but she drifts off to rest again. She sleeps. And then in a wonderful echo, and I do think Margaret Wise Brown, who I don't know a thing about, but judging from when it was written in 42, et cetera, I wouldn't all be surprised if she had this echo. Uh, I do remember reading this to my girls at the very end. Oh, shucks, I guess I'll stay here and be a little bunny. Remember what to mom, the mom says? Here, have a carrot, which is like John 21, the end of John's gospel, where they're out fishing and they're in grief and they're just totally dumbfounded. And, what just happened? We, we thought he was the one, and he died, now he's buried, and they don't know that he's up again. But Thomas says something that maybe something's happened. And they see the Lord, and Peter puts on his clothes, which is funny, because he puts on the clothes to jump in the water, to swim to shore, and Jesus is there cooking breakfast. And what does Jesus say? Have a carrot. <laughs> he says, have some breakfast, have some fish. It says, quote, have some breakfast, have a carrot, rest, be faith, trust. It's okay. Christ coming to you. I came from heaven. I went down to hell. And I'm still coming back, no matter where you go, to the highest heights or to the lowest depths. Um, Christ coming to you. So, um, that's all in here. I think it's a marvelous little scene. Um, And it sort of creates that space again, that emotional space is what I'm calling it. to, uh, to prime us for the scripture, which, which wants that. It's having that same word and effect to us. And so since Mark 9, where we were last time, um, if you're in your Bible, you can just flip through it. The transfiguration happens. That's, of course, where Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured, you know, wider than any bleach, wider than any white could possibly be. And, and Peter, who gets a, a raw rap for a lot of reasons, but he says the most normal thing in the world is like, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's stay here a while. Let's tarry. Let's dwell. Um, Let's make some tents and dwell for a while. And Jesus didn't do it. Um, Where did he do? Just like he does every single time, without exception. We should always remember this when we talk about the mountaintop experiences. He goes from the top of the mountain into the muck of the world. And he goes right to a place where there's a boy who from the outside looking in, he keeps trying to kill himself by throwing himself into fire or into water. He's trying to burn himself to death or he's trying to drown himself. And his father says, help me, Lord. My son is possessed by this demon. And so Jesus being always angular, never predictable. He's not meek and mild. He's not the nice guy. He looks at him, he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? before he expels the demon and heals the boy. And then he goes on and he passes through Galilee. Um, He did not want anyone to know, which is also an interesting part, just trying to deepen and broaden the enigma of Jesus Christ in some way, the angularity of Christ, where this isn't the only time where he intends to pass through a town where nobody would know it. And it just doesn't seem like it fits our normal conception of Jesus, meek and mild, nice guy, always patient and kind and gentle, which he is, but the word always becomes a real sticking point there because he also says, I have other things to do. I don't want to be found out. I want to do this at night. I want to do this in the desolate places. I want to do this in Nazareth and not in Jerusalem, that kind of thing. 
and he goes through and and uh, and after trying to pass through, he teaches again that he had to be killed and the third day raised again. And if Jesus is a good teacher, which is what we often hear, is like, look, can't we just all, you know, of all faiths, just say that Jesus is a good teacher and let's just be, let's just do what he said and the world will be a better place. And again, you want to say, well, that's true, but I don't think that Jesus would hold himself in to say that, what are you primarily? I'm a good teacher. Because if he's a good teacher, then why do they say, why does it say when he teaches them in parables and says they don't understand a word that he said and, uh, and then he grew angry with them. Um, they were afraid to ask him. Now, you know, it's not a grenade to die on because there's ways to teach where you'd have a, your students would fear you and you would teach in such a way that they wouldn't immediately understand. But nonetheless, it should broaden, it should question our normal conception. That's all I want to bring out of this, of Jesus, the good teacher, where he just sort of gives these directives in clear, uh, linear, almost PowerPoint fashion as if his ethical principles of just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, uh, turn the other cheek. Um, give to those that need. Um, and, and we have this in mind of six or seven or ten or fifteen points that Jesus, the good teacher, told us how to live. Uh, and he, he doesn't fit in that box well. Not when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because then he goes on, and even this week I had this conversation two times. People that hadn't been involved in this, so they didn't even know I'm, I'm, I'm chasing this rabbit, where they want to set up Paul as the bad guy for some reason, and Jesus is the good guy. Where Paul's got a bad view of women, that's what it was both times here. And Jesus is nice, and, uh, and they usually think hell is a bad thing, so it must be Paul, and Jesus would never talk about stuff like that. And then Jesus goes on and on and on very uncomfortably about tying a millstone around somebody's neck if they cause one of these little ones to sin. Suffer these little children to me. Look, if you cause one of these kids to stumble, tie a big rock around your neck. Concrete shoes is what he's talking about. And be thrown into the sea. And then, as he's got the floor and everybody's mouth is open, he's like, he doesn't let up. He says, and look, and you, and you, if your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. Because it's better for you to go around blind in this world than to suffer for eternity in hell uh, with, uh, because your eyes cause you to stumble. Same thing with your hands and your feet. Cut them off because it's better for you to be an amputee here than to spend eternity where there is weeping and gnashing of the teeth, where the fire never is quenched and the worm does not die. You're just like, my goodness, I mean, lay off. And then it brings us to this part. That's a strange Jesus, but that's him. Um, and it brings us to this place. Uh, can we somehow say with Thomas, my Lord and my God? Um, here's what I want to say in less than five minutes. Um, title of the class today, Nothing Shall Separate Us. Um, nothing Shall Separate. That, of course, comes from uh, Romans 8 from Paul. Um, what shall we say to these things? Like all the things that Jesus just said about better being amputee and blind and and, and concrete shoes if you cause a kid to, to stumble, and all these just enigmas that he's trying to pass by without talking to us, uh, that he seems peevishly um, uh, uh, impetuous when he passes this fig tree and he's hungry and he looks to see if it has any figs and he's like, oh, no fruit, wither and die, and he walks on. You know, we're gonna read that in just a minute. What's this about? What then shall we say to these things? to borrow Paul's phrase. Nothing 
nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How am I making that leap? Jesus is a jealous man. Jesus is a jealous God. And as the writer of Hebrews would say, it is a fearful thing. It is a strange thing. It evokes wonder, love, awe, terror, fear, and praise to be near that kind of authority. That's going to be next week's class, is wonder, love, awe, and praise. Uh, It evokes this otherness where we recognize uh, jealousy, which I think normally we think of as a very pejorative sense. It's like, you know, she's jealous and so she comes back and he tries to cook her bunny, cook, cook his bunny, that old movie. Um, or, you know, the jealous machination. What, where, where am I with my words today? Um, <laughs> the jealous activity of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a unrequited love or something else like that, where it's always, you know, hell-bent on revenge. Well, there's another way to jealous, where I'll let, I'll not share you with anyone. I love you so much that nothing and no thing, neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers, not ovarian cancer or suicidal psychosis or your own bent inwardness as Ruby Turpin or the weight of aging together or anything else in all creation be able to separate you from my love, which I demonstrate to you in Christ Jesus, my Lord and your Lord. Um, and I think we hear this in Romans, I'm sorry, in Mark 11. Let me read these real fast and just highlight here with an ear towards the jealousy of God, um, the jealousy of Jesus, where he's got all these strange sayings, everything from millstones and, and cutting it off and cleansing the temple and driving people out and, and, and being crazy with fig trees and the disciples are just astonished and amazed and the scribes and the Pharisees are plotting with the Herodians, two very weird bedfellows. Uh, to try to destroy him and kill him. What's a thread that we can follow to make some sense of this? Jesus is jealous. And who's he jealous for? He's jealous for you. He's jealous for me. Um, On the following day, this is Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything in it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This happens, by the way, on the Monday of Holy Week. The day before is when he entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday to Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. So so already, the rest of Mark, remember the race to the cross, almost half of Mark is his last week in life. So this is Monday of Holy Week. Monday before uh, the, the Last Supper of, of, of Maundy Thursday. Um, and then he goes into the temple. And then they came to Jerusalem. So he's going in for the last time. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, and they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, 
and they passed by in the morning, and they saw a fig tree, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, amen. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes uh, that what he will say, that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Stop there just because of time. What's going on? Um, the jealous love of Jesus, where nothing and no thing will be able to separate you from it. The object of his desire, the object of his love, uh, the fig tree, just to jump through it, is uh, uh, it stands on its own, but it's a metaphor for Israel, and it's a metaphor for us. The scriptures, the prophets especially, um, several times when you're in your Old Testament, you'll read about Israel being the fig tree, Israel coming to season of fruit, and the figs being preserved. Um, the fruit of Israel being the chosen people of God. And he's saying, uh, uh, look, you worthless tree, um, wither, because I'll have no use for you. Um, he's back to the millstone kind of idea. And then he cleanses the temple. So this is all judgment. Again, cleansing the, the temple, the understanding that this is where God dwells. This is where God is located. This is where you can go to God. So the opposite of Christ coming to you, you can go to God here in this geographic place. Um, and he undoes all that. He washes it clean. He etch-a-sketches it out of existence. And he drives people out. And there's a whole part there. There was another reading where it just became easy. You were supposed to bring your first fruit from your work, you know, from your labor, from your vocation. You were supposed to bring that to the temple for the sacrifice. But it just made it easy. It's like, well, I don't want to lug my goat or my oxen or my pigeons or my fruit, my wheat, whatever else. Hey, commerce, why don't we just sort of set it up on the outside of the temple where you can just bring some money, trade it in. It's the same thing. and just leaving it home. You know, I, I grow wheat. Let me buy some wheat. We'll trade it out here at the temple. That's what's going on. Uh, and Jesus says, totally missed everything. And he drives everybody out. And then he goes out again Tuesday. Peter says, it happened. And then he think, I think he softens a little bit. And he comes out and he says, look, have faith in God. Be faith in your Father. Amen. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, again, just like Isaiah, um, where the, the mountains will be lowered and the, and the valleys raised to make straight a highway for your God. Who's going to move this mountain? How's this mountain going to be lowered? Um, uh, the faith is placed in you. Uh, that type of faith, which is astonishing, that type of confidence that nothing and no thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. This obviously isn't sort of take up the mountain and actually throw it into the sea. What's going to happen on Friday night is going to sort of solve all of that. We're Thursday before, then 2 a.m., Jesus saying, Lord, if it is your will, don't let me die tomorrow. Well, he had faith. And it didn't move that mountain. Um, and so you, you, there's no name it, claim it here. You can't look at this as a proof text to say, see, if we just all agree, we can sort of move this through. But it's something else. It's about the jealous love of God, about the jealous love of God in Christ, that he will not be separated from you. He will not let you be separated from him. Didn't let Vivian be separated from him. Uh, 
have faith, be faith. And even this mountain won't be an obstacle for it. If you go up on a mountain, just like in Margaret Wise Brown, uh, and you climb the very highest, if you become a mountain, that's what it is, I'll become a mountain climber, and I'll come to you. There's nothing that's going to separate me from you. I won't let you go. I won't let you go. And that's, I'm going to stop because I'm over. Um, away into this really strange part of, uh, of, of not just Mark, but all the Gospels. Um, God's jealous love. And what's he jealous for? He's jealous for you. And that's the beginning of the Gospel. The very, very astonishing news of God's love for you. Um, so let me pray. Happy to talk afterwards. Come, Lord. Um, mark these words as yours. Correct me where I'm wrong. I'm always wrong somewhere. Um, let your word go forth and uh, where it was spoken, where your word was spoken. Do with it what you will. Let it return to you 30, 60, or 100-fold. Um, uh, take this and make it to be um, helpful for, uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.